1: I'm Bill Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. John Mackey is the founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market. He helped fuel the rise of organic and natural food in the United States and also popularized the idea of conscious capitalism. John is a best-selling author and recently came out with a companion to the Whole Foods Diet called The Whole Foods Cookbook. In this in-depth conversation, John and I touch on why The Whole Foods Cookbook is different than your typical collection of recipes, and he shares more about the philosophy of eating a primarily whole food plant-based diet, along with the compelling science that backs it up. We also get into his thoughts on the food system, and given his perspective as the CEO of a billion-dollar food company, he talks about how consumers can use their buying power to create change. While it might seem that our food system, environment, and society are at a point of all-time crisis, John argues that we are in a process of evolution, and highlights how each new generation has contributed to our world in a way that has actually improved life as we know it. I also get his take on the future of our food system, and he offers some incredibly promising and positive feedback for young entrepreneurs. It's not every day that you get to hear from one of the most successful people in the food business. And I can say with absolute certainty that you will walk away from this conversation with candid and invaluable advice that is sure to inform your journey as a consumer, entrepreneur, or simply someone who wants to have a positive impact on the world. John Mankey, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. John, so you've got this exciting new uh, cookbook out. We're going to get to that, but um, I want to first start at really high level. We'll uh, we'll fly um, 100,000 feet in the air to begin with, and we'll eventually land this plane closer to where your cookbook is, which is very practical and in the kitchen. But um, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about um, what's happened to the food system that has brought us to the point um, we are today. Uh, but more importantly, we talk about the solutions to the existing problems we're facing and what do entrepreneurs, uh, activists, um, everyday people uh, what do they need to do to make sure that we Course correct, and get to a better place in the next thirty odd years. And judging from recent reports from the UN, uh, we don't have thirty years. Uh, we have about twelve years. They were
0: saying that forty years ago. Though, so. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's true. true. That's the boy who cried wolf. Uh,
1: yeah. So you know, there. we 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 need to take action, people. You know, we're facing, of course, we have climate change and uh, the re- very real problem about feeding ten billion people by twenty fifty. But on top of that, as you know really well, we're facing a global health crisis and, and you know, chronic diseases aren't slowing down and Americans still are confused about what to eat. Um, and there seems to be more information out there than ever before, yet uh, people seem more misinformed than ever. Um, so I want to start really high level. Let's, um, if I think of the, the food system as it stands, like any system, as any institution, any corporation, individual, maybe even culture or society, I think of it as sort of in a continuous spiral of evolution. Um, And if you look back, dating back to our early hunter-gatherer ways to the evolution of agriculture to, uh, say, in the last 100, 200 years, industrialization of our food system, um, it's got us to the point where we are today, where, where we know we need to change. And you've You've been doing that with Whole Foods for several years, attempting to, to play your role in changing that system. So we get a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this show that either starting companies, already run companies in the food space. Um, they, in many ways, are helping to shape this food system for the next 100, 200 years. So I guess I'd like to start off with um, what can we learn from the last 70, years? What, what ways of doing business in this food system just aren't true anymore and just won't cut it for the next 30, 40, 100 more years. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by I won't cut it. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, you know, what have we learned from our missteps in the last uh, 70, 100 years about how we feed the world that we need to change if we are going to be able to feed 10 billion people by 2050? Like, what would you think need to be the first things that need to change for anyone building a food company for the future?
0: I mean, it's a very difficult question because mm-hmm. ultimately, ultimately the, mar- the market determines these things. It's, it's a common misunderstanding that, uh, that people are always in a morality play type of consciousness where they're looking for the villains and the heroes. Who are the bad guys that we can hate mm-hmm. and, and blame? and tack. And it's, there's an old cartoon that I'll date myself here when I was a little boy growing up called Pogo. And there was, at one point he said, we've met the enemies and the enemy is us in the sense that we make these choices. And it's, we make choices and the market is, is not a bunch of evil corporations that Mm -hmm. are out there to despoil the planet and addict you to horrible foods. They're basically responding to market signals from people. And, I, I suppose that you go back in our evolutionary heritage, um, I mean, humans evolved when food was very scarce. The single biggest problem humans faced for 99% of our of our history was getting enough food, mm-hmm. getting enough calories. So we only starved to death. And calorie density, a lot of calories on a per gram or per ounce basis have been relatively rare in history. Uh, And so we have evolved to basically crave foods that have a lot of calories in them. So we crave sugar. What is sugar? It's a whole plant food that's taken all the fiber out, all the other nutrients out until it's been stripped down to its most elementary calories, which is sugar, pure carbohydrate. What is vegetable oil? A whole plant food that's taken all the fiber out, it's been stripped down to its very basic in terms of of its fat. It's just pure fat, pure oil, pure calories. And we like things that have a lot of calories in them. Refined grains, what do we do? Take again, take away the fiber, take away the nutrients, get that plant food to where it's going to give the most calorie punch because that's what people like. That's what they vote for with their pocketbooks. People like sodas and they like candy bars and they like rich foods that have a lot of cheese in them, have a lot of oil in them because those are like super calorie dense and we crave them and we become frankly addicted to them. We like salt, which is also something we faced as a scarcity when we were evolving. So now we overdo it with salt. So I don't think you can understand the system until you understand sort of where people came from and what our predispositions are. It takes consciousness, individual consciousness, and then eventually social consciousness to recognize, okay, we're always going to have this uh, tendency for addictions. But I mean, when I was a kid growing up, more than 50% of adults in America smoked cigarettes and still way too many smoke, but they're down to, I think, 20% or less now. So we've we've moved away from that, even though it's highly addicting substance. We know things like alcohol or cocaine or or opiates are highly addicting and people can get hooked on those things. So consciousness means you can make different choices. So people have to become more conscious of their own predispositions to eat super calorie dense foods. And if people stop buying those foods, mm-hmm. they will stop making them. They're not making them because they're mean people. Mm-hmm. They're making it because that's where people keep buying. and So they're going to make more of it. I always say we vote with our pocketbooks every time we shop. Mm-hmm. And and I when people get mad at me, for example, I'm a I'm a, been a I've been a plant-based guy my almost my entire adult life, a vegan for the last fifteen years. Why does Whole Foods sell animal foods? It's like because people keep buying them, they keep voting for them. I'd like them I'd like them to be voted out of our store, but mm-hmm. uh, that's not happening. So we're gonna continue to meet the market where we find it within the parameters of our quality standards. So I think that's the first Mm -hmm. thing about changing the food system is move away from the morality tale of Mm -hmm. there's these evil corporations and the people are born pure and innocent and then they're corrupted. I just think that is not true. It's obviously overly simplistic. Mm -hmm. So we have to become more conscious and begin to take responsibility for our own health, the health of our bodies, our families, our friends, our communities, and as we do that, it will change. It is changing. It's mm-hmm. changed a lot in my forty years of being in business. It'll change a lot more in the next forty years. In fact, it's going to change faster in the next forty years because of the, of the social technology that and and Google and and the way people can absorb information today is so much quicker than they could have in the past.
1: Yeah, I, I I like what you said about not making it a morality tale because that's usually how you know I get history. It depends from whose perspective you're saying you're telling it. Uh, it can be easily skewed as being it's this evil corporations versus innocent people. Yes, but the more I've actually read about, especially I do a lot of reading about the history of meat and and uh, and how we came up with our industrial agriculture system. And it is, and you're hundred percent right. What I've learned uh, in the last year or so of diving deep into that, that it's not about. It is, what, it is choices made by people depending on, as you said, what the market wanted, what people wanted. People in America wanted cheap meat, and they wanted the price of meat to be kept consistently low and it be available abundantly. So the market responded and gave them that.
0: And, well, that one's a little more complicated mm-hmm. because the price of meat is artificially low. Mm-hmm. We're not allowing free markets to work there because... We're subsidizing the production of the animal of the animal foods that they feed the animals. Corn and soybeans, in particular, are heavily subsidized foods. If if actually animals, if meat in America was at a true market price, it'd be far more expensive. Yeah, and that would be a good thing for the animals. It'd be a good thing for the environment. It'd be a good thing for our health. So, if you're asking me one simple thing that will help. Mm-hmm. Uh, make the planet. I mean, it deals with climate change. It deals with with ethics. It deals with uh, land use and protection of rainforest. Is we got to eat less animal foods? Man. I mean, we are we, from a carbon footprint standpoint. We now produce more carbon in animal agriculture than we do in all forms of transportation combined. And the, the deforestation, the the loss of species. A lot of this traces back to just taking jungles and rainforest and raw land and converting it over to grazing land to produce more crops to feed livestock animals. Because mm-hmm. the basic truth is, is that while meat consumption is down a little bit in the United States over the last twenty years, it's exploded pretty much everywhere else in the world. And as people become wealthier, that craving I talked about before for calorie-dense foods, make no mistake about it, animal foods are intensely Mm calorie-dense. They have a lot of protein and they have a lot of fat in them and very little few carbohydrates and very little fiber or no fiber, but Mm -hmm. they are calorie-dense. And then people refine it further. They'll They'll take something like cow's milk, which is already really rich with a lot of calories in it and then turn that into butter and cheese. So you get even more calories from it. Uh, Or they'll take uh, something like uh, uh, beef or pork, and they'll raise the animals to maximize fat production on the animals. Why? Not because they're evil, but because that's what the market says it wants. It wants that prime meat that's got a lot of marbling in it because for people that taste better Mm -hmm. so again then they're raising the animals that way and that means they have to be fed and finished not on grass for the most part but on on corn and soybeans because that'll produce more more fat in the in the meat itself so if we are going to change things we'll start with having people become more conscious and begin to uh well first we should stop subsidizing Mm. the production of animal foods from a political standpoint. Uh, That's what's going on, and we see it, but we haven't been able to change it politically. So that would be- I mean, I think,
1: do you think that's realistic? I mean, people, I think previous presidents have tried that. And one of the reasons, if you go back to why subsidies came about, I mean, we decided, we made a choice to take uh, animal agriculture, meat, dairy, and eggs, and pull it out of the free market- and subsidized with government dollars so that we could uh, give you know theoretically give farmers a living wage and uh, the price would stay low and you would keep the you'd balance demand and supply uh, and then hopefully people will be able to use their disposable income for other luxury goods well i uh, mean that first of all that that i'd call that a myth what you just described mm-hmm. because uh, the
0: reality is not these family farmers that are getting these subsidies. Mm-hmm. These are these are agribusinesses that are getting these subsidies that, yeah. that are are farming tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres, and uh, uh, that that might be contracted in some cases. But the idea that there's some little farmer out there growing, you know, a few acres that he's selling to the market for wheat and corn and soybeans is not true. Mm. It's not how it's being done. I mean, a huge percentage of both the soybeans and corn that are grown in America go to feed livestock animals. Yep. They're not being consumed by people. And animals are very bad producers of um, conversion. Mm-hmm. So if, if you feed, you have to feed, like, I don't have the exact statistics, but it'd be easy to figure out by Googling it um, how much corn and soy goes into making one how many pounds and tonnage of that goes into make 1 pound of beef mm-hmm. or 1 pound of pork and 1 pound of chicken. I think chicken is like the most efficient converter, but it's still not very efficient. You'd be far better off eating those grains for people to eat those grains themselves and be yeah. far less damaging to the environment and obviously better for the animals as well
1: yeah I think about hundred calories of grain converts to only about three calories of beef yeah um, and also the
0: water, of
1: course the yeah. water
0: that goes into irrigating that land processing that that, that those grains is enormous and we have a fresh water challenge and mm-hmm. around the world, and we especially have it with groundwater contamination when we do these factory farms and their waste products are running into the aquifers and polluting local uh, local communities it's it's that we have an amazing waste disposal problem for these, and uh, these concentrated uh, yeah. feeding operations.
1: So I guess it's safe to say that you know, from a perspective of what we could have learned, um, if I could sum up what you said and, and correct me if I've got it wrong, is that uh, what we have learned in the last seventy hundred years is that uh, the industrialization of our um, of our key calorie dense food source, which is animal protein, um, is it needs to change. I mean, we have firstly a lot of it has happened because of, as you said, subsidies, vertical integration by companies like Tyson. Uh, where, as you said, the you know the myth that the the farmer is going to see is seeing the end result of these subsidies is the you know, farmers are really the smallest, the last ones who see any benefit out of all of this. It's the meat processors right. and the and the giant four big giant corporations that run this industry. But again, they do that because people want those foods, right? They do, and they want them less expensive. Yeah. Um, but something interesting has started to happen in the last, uh, I mean, in some ways it's been happening for the last four decades since you've been doing the work that you do, but more, uh, I, I guess it's accelerated in the last 10, 15 years is, um, this whole new shift or the new transformation in the food industry. And you can say it's been led by a combination of activists as corporations as well, such as Whole Foods. You can categorize the organic movement under that, the the plant-based food industry, um, the vegan movement in some ways, this shift towards the fact that, hey, we need to be a little bit more conscious about what we're eating or the system isn't ever going to change. Correct. Um, and so I, t- I tend to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who play in that space, who are now saying, hey, we've the way of doing business has gotten us to this terrible point. We need to change things. But the challenge I think they all face and, and the sort of the paradox that they have to deal with is that the principles upon which they build these new companies uh, providing new products that are probably sold in Whole Foods and elsewhere are things like justice, equality, compassion, fairness. But they still operate within the system that exists today, uh, driven by market demand, that call for cheap, fast, unhealthy food. So they're trying to fit they're better for you products under this existing system that gravitates towards you know, convenience and cost and taste. Um, and perhaps we're just in a transitionary phase where we'll eventually evolve past this into the whole foods diet. Uh, but I see a lot of these companies struggling with that where they want to offer something better, but they're operating under the the constructs of this existing framework and they're trying to slot in whether it's a meat replacement or a dairy replacement, but they're still tied up with the same manufacturing, distribution and and consumption patterns that have been built on animals. The world agriculture. is a messy
0: place. <laughs> and guess what? It was it was it's always been messy. The truth of the matter is that I mean I'm gonna shift gears a little bit to mm-hmm. to to um to shift the conversation a bit, because I would argue it's never been better than it is right now. For all the challenges and all the uh, things we face, uh, it's well documented now. In fact, the, people ask me what book should they read. I, the book I generally recommend people read these days is Steven Pinker's book, *Enlightenment Now*, because he so well documents how much progress humanity's made. We're not living in the worst of times; we're living in the best of times, yeah. and we've people have never been—they've never lived this long. They've never um they've never been this prosperous before. So they the system needs to evolve, but it's not it's basically not all bad. It's mostly good. And it's and it's and it's it is evolving. And as I pointed out, it evolves as people as preferences change, the market responds to it. I mean a lot of these CPG companies well, I'm just giving a couple of examples. Uh, the biggest food uh show in america now was a little show when i got going only a a few hundred people went to it and that's the natural uh, natural products expo Mm -hmm. in anaheim i went to the first i went to it for years I, i don't really go to it anymore but uh it was tiny and the big the really big one was the supermarket industry one fmi and this completely swapped around. I mean, the the Natural Foods Expo is – Natural Products Expo is huge now. It's the biggest one there is. And so many of the s- classical CBG companies uh, – CPG companies are are struggling to – they ne- have negative comps. They're, the market is moving away from their products. And they're buying up natural – they have been buying up natural products mm-hmm. companies to try to get to where the market is going. And – So I guess what I'm trying to say is the system is changing and is evolving. I mean, if you'd have told me when I got started 40 years ago that organic was going to be this big business someday, I would have probably said that's very unlikely. I don't think so because the world I grew up in was a world of total skepticism that people would ever buy these products because they were – you know they were done by a bunch of hippies and and they were um they were more expensive and and they they weren't what people were used to so change is something that does occur and i think it's important that people study history and they don't know how they don't know what things were like 100 years ago and there's all this judgment about the past that it wasn't from an ethical standpoint or uh, racism and exploitation of women and And they get that part of the thing down, but they don't get where we were economically, Mm. which was super poor. I mean, you go back 200 years ago, and these statistics are true. You can look them up. 200 years ago, 94% of the people on this planet, 94% lived on less than $2 a day on today's dollars. And 85% lived under under less than a dollar a day. The world was poor, and the average lifespan was to 30. It was horrible. It really was. And we have... Through industrialization and through capitalism, we have basically clawed our way out of those conditions. So what we're talking about now are a lot of unintended consequences mm-hmm. of that, which aren't good. They need to be solved for. But you've got to put it in the context of where we were and where we've come and not just throw the whole thing out, which is what a lot of people want to do. They're, yeah. they're anti-modernist. Mm-hmm. They reject the modern world as... Because they're focused on the failings of it, and rather than seeing the progress behind it, is there racism in America? Of course there is. Mm-hmm. Is there exploitation of women? Absolutely. A fraction of what it was a hundred years ago, though it's so much better, and people don't see that. Yeah, it's 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 the it, United States today is one of the most least racist countries in the world, and one of the fairest for women. Um, historically speaking and in the context of other countries in the world. So we're making good progress. The system is evolving. And, hey, that's the fun part. If you're a new entrepreneur, stop whining that the world's (laughs) kind of messed up. That's your job. Your job's to go fix it. Do the best that you can. We're all – that's the human journey. We don't live that long. And while we're here, we should do what we can to make the world a better place, make our lives count for something. Mm -hmm. And – I mean, it was messed up when I got here. So when people try to blame my generation, it's like, who are you kidding? I, we've done my generation has done a tremendous amount. We haven't solved all the problems, to be sure. And but you know, we're going to die off, and then everybody else gets their shot at it. Yeah. So that's the challenge that I always tell young entrepreneurs is: stop complaining about stuff and go out and make a difference mm-hmm. and create your business on these higher principles. You because. As Gandhi said, we've, we must be the change we wish to see in the world. So create your ideal businesses and let the entrepreneurs experiment. And that's how progress is made. And so, yes, we're in this uh, – there's no simple solutions to this stuff. But you know what I fundamentally believe, Noel, is that I really do believe human creativity is limitless. When people ask me how we're we going to solve these problems, it's like, why should I have to have all the answers? I've <laughs> solved some problems, but collectively – We can solve these problems. We're going to come up with unexpected things. I mean, if you just go back 20 years ago, not that long ago, 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, Google had just started, right? But nobody was really using it. It started in 1998, so 20 years ago. There were no smartphones. There was no – Apple was a two-bit company 20 years ago. Steve Jobs was uh, unemployed from Apple. And uh, uh, there was no uh, – no iPads. There was no Airbnbs, no Ubers, uh, no smartwatches. There was the internet was you know b- it was going. No social but, media, no yeah. Facebook. Amazon existed, but it was, yeah. a, it was a tiny little company. No Facebook, uh, no Twitter. So look how much uh, those com- companies have changed the world in the last twenty years, and. Why are we not expect that there are going to be all kinds of new breakthroughs we can't even imagine that will change the world even more in the next 20 years? I'm certain there will be. Mm -hmm. And the challenge for entrepreneurs is to be part of that, to be creative, to be out there and continue to tackle these problems and innovate in unique, creative ways that will solve these problems. That's... And I think part of your job is to help spread that. You're like a honeybee, dropping pollen everywhere, helping helping fertilize a lot of flowers.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I won't I won't uh, get into all of it, but but I think what you said was really crucial. About uh, you know, in hindsight, always seems we, we it always folk. It's easy to just find blame, but if it wasn't for the the choices we made um, seventy hundred years ago, uh, which now sometimes in retrospect depends on what perspective you're looking at may seem like bad choices. If it wasn't for those choices, we wouldn't have gotten to a place where we can even get better. Um, so, you know, it, I think we're in a... You know, I think what's important is what you do with your creativity and the skills that you have at your disposal now um, to to get us to wherever our next sort of spiral, or circle of evolution is going to be. Exactly.
0: And it, and that's true for ethics as well. I mean, humanity is evolving its ethics. We are... We We've... Our heritage is a tribal heritage, and so there's a tendency to, to identify with the tribe and hate those who aren't in the tribe. This is still a real problem. It's what's tearing America apart now. We have these different political tribes. Mm-hmm. Used to, people used to fight over religion, but now they're tend to fight over politics, and each thinks they're right and the other one's wrong or evil, and they demonize the other side, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a unifying higher purpose that's connecting people together. That's that's a challenge for this next generation to mm-hmm. figure out: is what is America's higher purpose, and what's the unifying values that we can pull together these very disparate political views before we go into open warfare with <laughs> each other.
1: And the same is true in food. Um, in in food and health, is that we we see more informed than ever before, but at the same time more divided, uh, and we 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 fight over the smallest of things. There's there's tribal camps, uh, the paleo, the keto, the vegan, um, when most everyday people who are just trying to feed their families are left confused. Um, And I think that's, it's indicative of a larger problem. You know, nothing exists in isolation. I think it's, it's what happens when you suddenly have access to abundance of information and connections to other people we tend to go back to our old ways of you know banding together in little tribes yeah uh, I, and I, finding identity. I do think
0: the food thing's a little bit trickier mm-hmm. so because there is a strong body of, of really definitive scientific evidence now I think diet is resolved ultimately by science and I, I feel like when we wrote the Whole Foods diet book, uh, we really tried to ground that in the best science that we could find and came out with the philosophy that we came out with. That doesn't mean it's the final philosophy. It's just the best we had based on the on the science that we have. Yeah. We have to recognize that there are vested interests in this game who don't want people to change their diets. And when the first information came out about tobacco being a harmful product, the tobacco industry began to fund studies that showed, actually, guess what? This does really pretty good for you. And there's – and they would – because their their goal was to sow doubt. If people liked smoking and they didn't want to quit smoking, they were eager to believe that actually it's really not that bad for mm-hmm. you. And so uh, it took a long time before the actual science – because remember, you could not do controlled studies, right? You couldn't like get a group and we're turning these into tobacco addicts and these will keep – non-addicted, and we will watch what happens over 40 years. You couldn't have a controlled experiment, Uh, it'd be unethical to do that. So instead we had to do epidemiological Mm -hmm. studies, and we could see what would happen, and smokers tend to die younger, they tend to get more lung cancer. But it's all correlation, you're not causation, Mm -hmm. and the tobacco industry made a big deal. The reason I say this is because the exact same thing is going on with food. You have powerful industries. You have the meat industry. You have the dairy industry. You have the sugar industry. You have the packaged foods industry. And they don't want to lose their customers. And they're happy to – you have the egg industry. They're all happy to fund studies that, guess what, shows that uh, dairy products actually are not bad for you. Mm -hmm. And and if you do a study where you compare it to a diet full of sugar and white flour, it looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's that's what they tend to do. Uh, And people don't dive – deeper into the studies. So I do think there's a a large scientific consensus about the healthiest diet, which is to eat. I mean, Michael Pollan said it pretty well, which is, eat real food. Stop eating all this Mm -hmm. junk food. Eat real food, not super processed foods mostly plants. Mm-hmm. He didn't say 100% plants. I know Michael and he was you know, he doesn't he doesn't follow the whole foods diet. He eats more <laughs> animal foods than 10%. But I do think the science is pretty clear that if you want to the only diets ever been proven to reverse heart disease, for example, is a whole foods plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from our work at whole foods with our team members and our total health emergence you can reverse diabetes. Type 2 diabetes fairly quickly. Obesity, no one should get that. That's that's a a dietary disease for the most part. It can be changed through diet and solved for. So we have a lot of information, only it's going to take a generation or two to beat back the false studies. (laughs) I'll call them that.
1: I find it interesting that at this, um, you know, 40 years into the work that you're doing, that you are spending your time talking about diet and and I spend uh, some of my time, some of I'm of time. running I'm let's, still running a pretty big company <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay yeah, let's let's clarify that yeah some of your time um but you know I know it's not an no easy task to to put out a book and you wouldn't do it if you didn't think it was gonna make an impact um the reason i I bring that up is because a, a lot of people now uh, are looking at what's happening um, what's happened in the food system and and people's diets and health in this country and what's gonna happen globally and are looking at you know the, it's the classic you look at the demand side of the problem which is what people are eating and then the supply side which is the industry and everyone seems to say well it's really tough to get people to change the way they're eating but so instead we're going to go change the food we're going to we're going to make use plant proteins and create meat we're right. going to use cellular agriculture right. and so a lot of people that in the past would have been you know spending their some of their time at least Talking about diet and health the way you are right now, I instead not have been bringing that up because they think it's it's less effective. What's more effective is you just make the default choice when you go shop at Whole Foods or eat at McDonald's to be a better choice. And that's the way you bring about change. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that, as in maybe it's all right. There's no right and wrong here. <laughs> so uh,
0: I I do think... You can change the system. So uh, uh, one of my good friends, Dan Butner, the guy, the man behind the Blue mm-hmm. Zones, that where they've studied the five cultures that had the highest degree of longevity, which was Okinawa, uh, I- I- Icaria, Greece, um, Sardinia, Italy, Nicoya, Costa Rica, and Loma Linda, California, mm-hmm. with the Seventh Day Adventists are concentrated, and. And as he studied that, uh, he began to realize they had a lot of commonalities on it. And then he was inspired by a guy in Finland named Pekka Pushka, who I've met. And I was in Finland just a month (laughs) or so ago. And Finland had a very high degree of heart attacks. Men were dying mostly in their 50s because they ate a horrible diet. A very high saturated fat, animal fat diet, a lot heavy dairy they smoked, they, they, um, um, they killed themselves off. So he began to work on the system as a whole, meaning he took this one he got some government funding and he worked with this one part of North Karelia in Finland. And he began to work with food stores, he began to work with farmers, he began to work with the meat. Like, let's just take an example. Um, if you're selling, the, the Finns like to eat... Uh, uh, say, a lot of really fatty pork. And so you would say, well, let's... What if you think if we... This would save you money. What if we went with a third of it, like it Mm -hmm. had uh, 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 some kind of plant protein in it? And they'd do the test, and the taste wasn't that much different. But they were cutting out, like, a third of the same kind of saturated fat they were getting from those pork. And it was cheaper for people, so they were selecting it. Uh, What if we... Uh, when you went to the stores, made it difficult for people to – made it a little harder to get candy in the stores, for example. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't be, have it at the checkouts. And they worked on this at every different level. And they also said, what if people would walk more and they just exercise more? And so they began to attack it on a systems-wide basis. Mm-hmm. And guess what? They made a massive progress, not like in 60 days, but over a 10-year period. They massively, massively reduced heart attacks for men in their fifties. I mean, like ninety percent. They made wow. huge progress. Dan found about out about that. Met uh, Pekka Pushka, uh, who and uh, he's a he's created a plan in the U.S. now that are called Blue Zone cities. And I'm very excited about this. I want Whole Foods is going to work to support this. And they've they're in like forty cities around the United States. They're invited in. Nobody, you know, they're not going where they're not wanted. But they basically go in and they'll contract with the city to get better health outcomes, to increase with with metrics that you can measure from exercise to weight loss. And it gets funded because they make contracts with insurance companies that are, that are their health insurance companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example. Um, and – it's pretty interesting story. They're changing the system They're cha- and they're cutting back smoking and they're working at it. They also do something they picked up from Finland – no, from um, uh, Okinawa. Yeah. They, they create these small groups of people that they bring together that are basically – have common interests. But one of the common interests is health. Now, maybe they're focused on eating a, a more plant-based diet or maybe they're trying to exercise more. Maybe they just like to go dancing together. But they're bringing people together in this community-type settings – and, and creating those relationships—that's critical if you want to change the system. It's very hard to change it one person at a time. You need to—we're so influenced by our families and our friends. Mm. You know the old saying: if, if, if your three best friends are fat, you're going to be fat too. <laughs> and if, and if you're a young person and your friends all smoke, you're inevitably going to become a smoker mm. too. So peers make a big difference. So I just think we can change the system, mm. and I think. Because we live in this social uh, social media time, it's a lot. We can get people together a lot faster where I'm seeing some of the negative consequences of that mm. with flash mobs and things like that. Protesting political office holders mm-hmm. because you hear they're in a restaurant and you just tweet it out and 50 people can show up in <laughs> five minutes to hassle <laughs> them. Um, but it can also make big changes in the way people live and their health and their lifestyle. Mm. So there's stuff going on out there. And the young entrepreneurs of today are going to go a lot further. They are going to figure out how to crack uh, crack a lot of these crack mm-hmm. the code on a lot of these problems. They're going to hack it. <laughs> yeah, hack into it.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I what I so getting to your the the cookbook because um, you know back I'm I'm really I read the first book and you know we ta- we talked back then and, and I loved it. I loved the message. I loved the science. It was very well laid out. The cookbook takes it to another level, and no matter how many products you have in the market and how many new restaurants are open that provide healthier food to people, um, I still like it when people go out there, especially people with your reach, um, preaching, some I wouldn't say preaching, but spreading the message about something as simple as everyone needs to learn how to cook. Um, Not
0: everybody, mm -hmm. but... At least one person in a family family. unit needs to know how to cook. Every household, With women being more empowered and going in and taking more leadership positions, a lot of the young millennial women I meet, it's a badge of pride that Mm -hmm. they don't know how to cook. Yeah. And unfortunately, the men aren't necessarily picking up the slack. So this is is a problem. And, you know, to get basic cooking skills is not that difficult. And, again, the great majority of recipes in this book you can do in 30 minutes or less – and it and it's gonna do so much for your health. I really feel like it's very difficult to get healthy food at restaurants. Uh, and it's huge compromises are made at almost every restaurant. So learning how to cook, learning those skills, you're making an investment in your own personal health. you're making an investment and in, you're gonna save money, and you're making an investment in your family's health and the people that you love. I mean, it gives me great joy. I do most of the cooking. Uh, for my wife. And I love to cook for her. I feel like it's a service I'm providing for her because we eat the same diet and I can take care of her this way. It's a way way of, I actually love her. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love myself when I'm taking care of her, I'm taking care of myself. So definitely win-win. So people need to rethink. Cooking is not something that just these experts do. Cooking is something that it's a it's a life skill. We ought to be teaching. Frankly, we ought to be teaching it in schools. Yeah. I mean, we did. We used to teach home <laughs> economics. I would I would I would say basic cooking skills. I mean, if people need basic financial skills, by God, there's nothing we can do that'll be have a bigger impact on our health than learning how to cook, mm-hmm. how to cook whole, whole foods. Um, that 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 would be a transformative. If some young entrepreneur ought to crack the code on that one because if we can, if we created easy uh, schools for people to learn
1: how to do the basics in cooking, um, it'd be a revolution, yeah. And it's it's interesting that you can see things at such a systems level, and you, you obviously, from the years at running Whole Foods, you, you understand how the food industry works. Um, but uh, I find it kind of amazing that you still, you know, to be able to. Put out a cookbook and through the work you're doing, spreading the word on this cookbook and the and the previous book you wrote, I guess is it safe to say you still have hope in people and individuals and the power of individuals to. It's the purpose. Take control. It's my
0: purpose in life. It's Whole Foods is mm-hmm. purpose. Our purpose is to nurture people and the planet. This is why we exist. This is why we created the company. This is what it's all about. So of course I'm doing it. Mm. What What else would I be doing? This is what. Why I started the business, why I'm still doing it. It's why even after the merger with Amazon, I mean, I've got a lot of money. I don't have to do anything I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And this is all about purpose at this point, how to help people. You know, we've had over 4,000 of our team members go through our total health immersion at Whole Foods, and it's incredibly transformative. I can't go into any store in our company where I don't get somebody to come up and hugs me because they went through an immersion and they reverse their diabetes or they've lost 125 pounds or they reversed their heart disease. I mean, food makes a difference, and I know this. I've spent my life knowing this and learning it and getting more skilled at it. So uh, what would I do that's more purposeful or would give me more joy mm-hmm. than this? I'm just doing exactly what I want to do. No one's. I'm, there's no gun in my head talking to you today. Yeah. I'm doing it because I believe in it.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the day, everyone sort of just followed their intuition and did what they were drawn to do and what they believe in. Is right given the facts and circumstances and the science, uh, we would all have a lot more power. Because, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, it's easy to just look around and complain and not be uh, mindful of how far we've come and how much further we can go purely because individuals have decided, you know, I figured out this is the right thing to do, whether it is um, shifting your diet or buying better products or uh, supporting your community in some way. And that's literally the only way change comes about. It doesn't happen because some, someone you know, has a gun to their head being forced to do something. Exactly. I mean, um, we each
0: have to wake up and become more conscious. And then we have to go into service. I mean, um, Albert Schweitzer basically said, and he said, it's one of my favorite quotes, is that, um, I don't know which of you will end up being happy in life. But the ones that I know will truly be happy are those who have learned how to serve others. And so actually service in terms of some type of purpose that aids other people and helps people live a better life is what gives my life meaning. And I think Schweitzer was right. I think it's, it's a key to happiness in life. We, it's not about your own narcissistic pleasure. That's going to lead to unhappiness and misery and envy and resentment of others and feeling sorry for yourself. When you go into service and you do what you can to make the world a better place, then you'll probably find a life of meaning
1: and joy and uh, love. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really beautifully said. But, um, you know, I think I look at Whole Foods. I'm going to bring one more point about Whole Foods Um if I look at, I know you're. I, I'm sure you're familiar with, with Spiral Dynamics, and I think of oh, yeah. Whole Foods as being at past the green stage at this point. Where and we won't go into the details of what Spiral Dynamics is, but because we don't have time, we don't have time. But <laughs> <don't> have time, <laughs> but, uh, but it's very fascinating. I would encourage everyone to look it up. Uh, but it it kind of helps you understand people and society and culture and business even to some extent and how we don't it's you know what you were saying earlier, it's not simple. We slip back into our tribal ways sometimes, right. even though we're so technologically advanced. And you look at what Whole Foods has done really as, as part of, you know, a bigger movement in the last, you know, few decades, it's it's shifted and changed, helped shift and change the conversation around food. And it's, in some ways, what you're doing now with with the cookbooks, so I really think of just being an extension of that very same mission, really. I think so. I agree. Uh, and
0: uh, I don't know if Whole Foods collectively is, you know, I think Whole Foods' center is pretty green, actually. Mm-hmm. I do think selected leaders probably are not there. And, but Whole Foods is, um, uh, you know, we're trying to make a difference. And, mm-hmm. and. I think we have, and I think there's a lot more we can do over time. I hope so, particularly now with Amazon partnership.
1: Mm -hmm. So let's look ahead. I know you don't have a crystal ball, and I'm sure everyone asked you to predict the future. Um, I I don't want you to predict it. I want you to tell me what kind of future you want to create. So if, you know, and ask this question of all my guests, uh, I give the year 2050 because reports say that things are either going to be horrible or they're going to be better depending on what we do now. Um, So if more people pay attention to what you're saying around the whole foods diet who check out this cookbook, which I highly encourage. It's it's really, I don't like cookbooks, to be honest, but I found this really interesting because I am not much of a recipe person. Mm-hmm. I don't like following recipe books. Well, this gives you the skill sets to create your own. It gives you the blueprint, I felt. Yeah. And I think that's more important because then you can kind of have fun with it. Um, and I think it gives you the skills. It gives you the the basis to do whatever you want to do with it. So if, if more and more people get this message, if um, if the system and everyone, wh- whether it's developing uh, cell-cultured meat or plant-based proteins, and um, and we shift our eating habits and we change the trajectory of where the food system seems to be headed right now, what is your more, most optimistic view of where we could be by the year 2050 if, if we get it right? Well, I mean,
0: that's 32 years into the future, Mm -hmm. and will I be alive? I hope so. Maybe I hope to live to see the prediction. Uh, But, um, first of all, the future is, as you say, it's really unpredictable, because we cannot know what innovations will occur. Mm -hmm. Yogi Berra, the great prophet, said it's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. (laughs) And he's right fundamentally. Yeah. So I don't, I can't foresee what innovations will occur that could have this transformative effect. But again, I tend to be very optimistic. And again, I want to do a second pitch for Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, because he so well documents how much progress we've made that you cannot read that book without coming out of it with great hope that humanity is not doomed, the, most of the news is negative. Mm. Most of what you read all the time is just negative, 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 negative. And in, when it's the truth, it's exactly the opposite. It's mostly positive, 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 positive. It's just not perfect. The perfect's the enemy of the good, mm. as they say. So uh, I really believe if we go 32 years into the future, we will have, there will probably have been a more change in the next 32 years than the previous couple of hundred years combined. We are. We are going. We are. We have reached an acceleration point of transformation in society, and it's just going to c- continue to accelerate. Uh, and as a result, um, I do think truth and science went out in the long run. And it, you know, they did. Nobody wants to defend cigarettes as good for you. It just took a long time before we could get the overall consensus to move in that direction. So the food system will be very different thirty years from now, and. There will be certainly a technological component to it. I always say that where we're heading to in food is that pretty much you can get any food that you want whenever you want it, wherever you want it, at a price that you're willing to pay. That's that's where we're heading. And in terms of the food system as a whole, I mean, think about right now we're in – there's more changing going on in food right now right now than any other time in the history of humanity. It's incredible how many entrepreneurs are out there creating and trying new things and and, uh, there's so much uh, capital being poured into entrepreneurial startups in the food space. And although I can't predict how that's going to end up, I am certain that the system is going to be far better far more resilient. I mean, systems like an organic system, we will... We'll have transcended that system. We will have replaced it with far more comprehensive views. I mean, ultimately, we're moving towards some type of total transparency about food, and pretty much about our society in general. I mm-hmm. think, so you'll know everything about a food, everything. You'll know how the how it was raised, everything you want to know, uh, how it was raised, uh, what what happened to the soil. Uh, what were the environmental impacts in terms of water runoff, in terms of aquifer damage? Uh, were there any pesticides used, anything that could be harmful? Or will we be still using pesticides in two, uh, 2050? There's a probably a very good chance we will not be because we will have found other ways to um, to deal with the – the pesticides dropping massive biocides <laughs> 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 over everything. Yeah. So, um, again, pesticides came about because people wanted to stop the insects from eating all the crops yeah. so people could eat them. Yeah. But there were a lot of unintended consequences from that. Basically toxicity and coming into and polluting our water and people collecting the pesticides in our, in our blood and our bones and, and, um, uh, probably shortening our lives. So, I think we probably will move moved away from that in the next 32 years. Um, we may have these technologies that will be, I mean, people may not be eating meat, but if they eat it, it probably won't be coming from animals that were slaughtered. It'll probably be stuff that's grown, just like we grow plants. Uh, I think agriculture itself, we're moving towards a type of agricultural system where we may not even be using soil anymore for the most yeah. part in 30 years. Uh, we know how to... I'm not uh, vertical vertical farming, intensive urban farming, greenhouses. Uh, uh, we may find ways to basically synthesize plants. I mean, it's 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 a science fiction uh, dream, and all I can tell you for sure, it'll be very different than it is right now. Yeah. And though, but here's the thing: it won't be utopia. There will be all types of that creative young entrepreneurs today. They're going to create these amazing things that are going to change our lives. There will be unintended consequences to that as well that we can't even imagine today. Uh, and uh, and then the, their kids will be saying, why the heck did you do that? You <laughs> messed everything up. And because every generation tries to solve the problems that the generations that came before it were unable to solve. Yeah. That's, their, that's their mission should they decide to accept it. <laughs> and uh, so I hope I live to be uh, th- another 32 years, because I can't wait to see what happens. I'm pretty sure most of it, but not all of it, will be good.
1: Yeah, that's that. John Mackey, thank you so much for those insights. That's that's amazing. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time today to chat with me. Um, and thank you for all the work you've done, you continue to do, and undoubtedly you will continue to do for the next 32 years. So I appreciate you being on. And for everyone listening, go check out the Whole Foods Cookbook. Uh, trust me it is it is not a cookbook, it is way better than that. Thanks so much, Nil. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization, develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.